This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. Imagine camping and then trying to do science on top of it. That's what it's like. I'm just picturing somebody like standing out the sunroof, whipping around a white lab coat. We have never left anyone behind. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we catch up with a field scientist to learn about doing research in the wild. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 128. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Josh, are you feeling better? I'm feeling a little better, Dan. I don't, I don't know if you could hear in the last episode, in the intro, I had a little bit of a cold. Yeah, and I think I still hear a little bit, the tail end of it. Hopefully uh, that improves. It's in there. Well, I have some elixir here that's going to help fix me right up. <laughs> that is debatable. We'll find out more about that in a second. Before we do, Dan, there's been no time for sickness here because I have been wrapped up in grad school interview season. This is probably the cause of sickness, isn't it? That's a very busy time of year for you. Been meeting a lot of people. Shaking a lot of hands. Going going out a lot, waking up early, staying up late probably. Yeah, you remember the whole drill. We did it. Yeah, well, well, we did it for a week or something like that, or maybe two weeks, but you are doing it for how many weeks in a row? How many interview weekends are there? Uh, four for us, and okay. we're two in and two to go, so halfway home. You're going to make it. And I guess for people new to the show, that's how we met. That is, yeah. Interview weekend. How many, how many students will come through for your particular role? Uh, around 350 for us, so that's wow. a lot, yeah. Do you remember every one of them? Of course. Okay, you know each <laughs> one by name, all of their whole CV? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Dan, as I alluded to, we have something different in front of us now for the ethanol section this week. No beer. True. This might be the longest stretch we've gone of episodes with no beer because we had cider. Oh, we did have cider. That was a two, so two episodes <laughs> is the longest. <laughs> it's an amazing new record, probably unbeatable. Well, this is the third. So tonight, Dan, we have put aside the beer and we are drinking some bourbon. Were you inspired by the fireball? Is that what brought this <laughs> Maybe on? It was. I, uh, I don't think we can call, actually, you can't call fireball bourbon. It's whiskey. Because it has additive. Uh, but this is bourbon. This is the Old Forester 1910 Old Fine Whiskey. So can I call it bourbon or can I call it whiskey? Uh, this is a Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but let me tell you about this, Dan. Uh, this is one that I have tried before and really enjoyed. But bourbon is super popular these days. I don't know if you knew that. Is that true? I feel like it was popular 10 years ago and it is not popular now. There used to be bourbon... Uh, bars that were devoted to bourbon around us, and, and they're all gone now, as far as I know. Continues to increase in popularity. And you know, Dan, the problem with bourbon is most bourbon is aged for a number of years in barrels before it hits the, the shelves. So unlike other spirits like a vodka or gin, and we did the distillery tour for your birthday. True. Uh, if the demand goes up, what do they do? You just distill a lot more. Yeah, and you pump out more, and you put it in the bottle, and you go. But this, Dan, you know, a lot of these bourbons maybe uh, four to 10 years goes by before uh, when they actually forecast how much they're going to produce and when it actually would hit the shelf. So uh, a little bit of delay. So this is one I enjoyed but have not been able to find, but I found it today. So Dan, tell me what you think, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's special about this uh, 1910. My, my first nose on it was a combination of cake, 
It was got a sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. And furniture polish. <laughs> like pledge? Yeah, it, it, like it's got a not lemon uh, it, pledge, it, but like no, no, uh, not lemon yeah. pledge. But it, it's it has the alcohol evaporates. You smell it. Yeah, and you know, so we are drinking this out of um, these are Glen Cairn glasses, Dan. Uh, you could almost imagine if you are not familiar with those, uh, you could Google them. But sort of like a wine glass, tulip shape, f- funnels the the smell up to your nose. But Dan, you'll notice these glasses are not quite as wide as a wine glass. Much narrower at the top. Uh, the reason is, unlike a wine, which what do you do when you when you taste a wine? You swirl it, and I, then you I just taste it. What do you what do you do with your nose? What is a connoisseur? Oh, you stick your nose way down in there. Take a big sniff, uh, but you don't want to do that with a it's bourbon. Be great radio to hear you do that. <laughs> uh, but what what what, do you, what would happen if you did that with a bourbon? You would choke. Yeah, absolutely. So not really supposed to take a big whiff because of the uh, ethanol. But I, I'm glad you said the sweetened stand. You know what I always get out of this 1910? It's bananas. Oh, that's interesting. I'll go back and try again. Tell us about the origin of it. All right, so. All of these old foresters uh, in this whole line of bourbons are named after certain years. And so this is the 1910. So on October 22nd, 1910, there was a fire on the bottling line that halted production of old forester bourbon. Um, However, the the company had several barrels of mature whiskey that was ready to be bottled that got disrupted by this fire. So what they did was they rescued these barrels and... I guess they decided to store the mature whiskey in a secondary barrel until they were able to get around to bottling again. And what they found was when they tried this whiskey that had been barreled a second time, that it was really pretty great and decided to make that an entirely new expression in their line of bourbons. So that is to mimic what happened in the fire. They don't set their bottling uh, line on fire every year to produce this, Uh, but they take some of their mature whiskey, they barrel it a second time, and you get a little more of that smooth, sweet flavor. Uh, this is also a lower proof bourbon, Dan. This is a 93 proof. I was really worried as you were telling this story that this was actually a bourbon from 1910, which I didn't think that was possible, <laughs> nor would you have it. But Yeah, that is not I got, true. I got a little scared. Um, is this going to go the way of the Gillette razor blade where if two barrelings is good, seven must be better? You know, I think there is an upper limit. So a a thing that a lot of bourbon producers are doing now is you'll see these double oaked. But what some of these producers are doing is they're actually putting wood staves to speed up the process. And what can More happen? Service area. And I've actually been to bourbon bars, Dan, where you you maybe seen this, where they'll have these small barrels maybe in the corner, and they do a secondary um, barreling of either a bourbon or actually a mixed cocktail. But what can happen if you're not too careful is too much of a good thing is actually bad. And you get a little too much sort of that astringent, mouth-drying, oaky taste. So there is a balance there. There's an upper limit here to the I think number so. of barrelings. I think well, so. Well, thank you for finding this. Thank you for sharing it. It is quite good. Um, difficult to find, you think, throughout the country? or Hard to say. I don't think this is a super hard to find, but just locally you may have trouble walk, just walking into a store and picking it up. But if you do and you're looking for a nice bourbon to share with your friends or try yourself. Uh, 1910 gets my recommendation. All right, Dan. Well, got some good news to share. We have three new Patreon patrons. Special thanks to our three new Patreon patrons, Sanjana, Tanya, and Sam. Thank you so much. We do appreciate it. And we will look forward to talking to them in our patron-only Slack channel. We would also like to remind you about the 
Promega Student Resource Center. When you go to promega.com slash hellophd, you can click right through to that. Um, and there's a ton of stuff here. Periodically, I like to click through and learn something about the world. The one I clicked on today was the Professional and Skills Development tab, and you can learn all about your job search. So if you're in that phase of your training where you're actually starting to look for jobs, there are articles on compensation and you know quizzes about what kind of scientific job is right for you, how to handle job interviews. It's all there for you at promega.com slash hellophd. Did you take the quiz to see what job was right for you? I'm in a great job. and uh, Science podcaster. Science podcaster is the perfect job. Perfect. With that in mind, let's move into our topic of the week. Josh, I think you'll remember very distinctly way back in episode 70. Oh, yeah. I remember it like it was yesterday. April 2017. You remember that we did a science in the news on, I think you brought this story about a student who had learned about amphibian parenting by going out into the field at late at night with flashlights and understanding how frogs are uh, reproducing. And we had a great laugh about it. And we thought, wow, that's a really different path to a PhD than the one we took where we kind of went to the lab and came home and slept in beds, uh, somebody out in the rainforest trying to understand this. So at the time, we said, oh, we should probably learn more about field work. Well, today's the day. Fast forward to 2020. It only took a little while. I got to talk to Vince Debs, who is a field scientist studying the hot springs in Yellowstone. You know, Dan, I think I have said on the show several times that if I could go back and do it again, I would become a field researcher. Dentist. I'm sorry. Or a dentist. Or a dentist. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, so that's what fascinated me about this. The Science Plus. Vince is doing amazing work and it sounds really cool, but he's getting to do it in some really incredible places. And I'm going to let him tell you about it. But I wanted to ask him not only what it's like to go outside of the lab to do his research, but also, what are some of the traits and skills that it takes to be that kind of scientist? So let's take a listen. Today, I'm joined by Vince Debs. Vince, welcome to Hello PhD. Thanks for having me. So Josh and I did our PhDs in a lab environment. So it was white coats and Eppendorf tubes and beakers. But we realized that there's an entirely different world out there for scientists who study things that can't be pulled kicking and screaming into the ivory tower and we found out that you are one of these mysterious field scientists. Um, and we actually found you because you recently won the Promega Art Contest just about a month ago. So congratulations for that. Well, thank you. And, and why don't you tell us what the photo was that, that you submitted? Right. So I submitted a photo of the Grand Tetons, um, which is a mountain range in the northwestern part of Yellowstone. And it was a long exposure, about a four-minute long exposure of uh, the Grand Tetons and then some boats and a pier in the, in the foreground. And that was, it was taken uh, around midnight to 1 a.m., and there's star trails, and yeah, it was it was on the way to do research field work in uh, Yellowstone National Park. Yeah, it's a beautiful photo. I hope you'll let us share it on the on the show notes for this episode. Of course, yeah, go right ahead. Um, but that is basically a picture of your lab, this beautiful mountain range and the boats kind of rocking slowly in the foreground. Tell us what takes you to Yellowstone. What is your research subject? So I work with Dr. Everett Schock at uh, Arizona State University in the 
group exploring organic processes in geochemistry, geopig. And so essentially what we are trying to do is connect geological processes, subsurface water rock, gas reactions, and spatial chemical variability in hot springs to microbial diversity and functions. So there's microbiology in there or is it pure geology and chemistry? There is microbiology in there. So we like to call ourselves a geobiochemistry lab or a biogeochemistry lab. That's great. And so that's not something that is even possible to study in a lab. You're, you're actually going out and you're taking samples at these hot springs. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. We, we go out into various environments around the world. Uh, most of my experience is in Yellowstone National Park. And we look at extremophiles in their natural environment. So if you can imagine a hot spring as a restaurant, you can assign different aspects of the dining experience to each part of our research. And this was... Um, this is one of my favorite analogies by one of our collaborators, uh, Dan Coleman at uh, Montana State. And you can think of the microbes as like the picky pa- patrons who, you know, they each have a different metabolism. Some prefer ferrous iron oxidation, others sulfate reduction, and maybe there's some hydrogen oxidizing methanogens in there. So if we translate that into gastronomical terms, you could have a vegan, a vegetarian, and a person following paleo diet all going out to dinner together. And so if they decide to go to a vegan restaurant, the paleo person will likely be able to find some sort of sustenance. But if they all go to a Brazilian steakhouse, the vegan and vegetarian will have very limited choices for dinner. So the best place that you, you know, that would support all of the patrons' eating preferences is somewhere in the middle, say Chipotle. The menu that the restaurant puts out is is directly related to the kind of patron you will likely see at the restaurant. If we can measure the amount of hydrogen, iron, sulfate, nitrate, etc. in a hot spring, we can learn more about the sort of microbes that live there. Taking that even further, a chef might build a menu out of what's in season or what the vendor is able to provide. And this is similar to the geological processes that occur over thousands to millions of years and drive the chemistry of each individual spring. So... Our lab, we're essentially uh, food critics trying to understand the process of how the food is transported to the chef, the menu the chef provides, and how the patrons react to their dinner. I love that analogy, although it did make me a little bit hungry. <laughs> what is the cilantro lime rice in this analogy? Is that uh, uh, probably methane that would, or something? Yeah, methane. Methane <laughs> or uh, hydrogen in the spring. This is not confined to Yellowstone National Park. This this type of work can actually take you around the world. Is that right? Correct. Yep. We have field sites that we visited in Oman, which is next to Saudi Arabia. There are, there are different areas around even the United States, like in Nevada, there's uh, some hot springs. There's also acid mine drainage in Patagonia, Arizona. Some of the students in the lab have gone to, uh, to Ecuador. There's some hot springs there. And we also have samples from Iceland and China. And, and what does it look like to go on one of these expeditions? Is it really devoted to taking a sample and then all of the, the chemistry and work gets done back at the lab? Or are you doing some things out in the field? What does a day look like out there? So it's a little, it's a little bit of both. The average day, at least in Yellowstone, would be essentially imagine like a uh, car camping. So we're all in tents at like the, the local campground. And then we would drive to an, an area on the road. Uh, there's no actual off-roading allowed in, in Yellowstone, so we can't do that. 
I love the image of scientists off-roading, but okay. <laughs> well, we've also done that too. That uh, we've, we've taken four by fours about a mile or two north of the Mexican border in Patagonia, Arizona. So that that was entertaining. I'm just well. I'm just picturing somebody like standing out the sunroof, whipping around a white lab coat. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, we so we we have uh, PPE that we wear. It's 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 not. Uh, it's not barbaric. But, okay. Um, Good. <laughs> glad to hear it. No, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're that you're taking precautions. So you're 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 camping, you're driving out to the site, and then what is what does the work look like? So the work really depends on what job you have, I guess. A- at least in our uh, group, is it always a team that goes? That's a that's a good thing to highlight. Um, at least with with the group that I work with, yes, we have usually five people in the group. And so each uh, each person has kind of like their own specific job just because we have so many things we want to sample in the field. So uh, one person might be uh, in charge of taking pH, conductivity, and temperature measurements of all the hot springs that we want to sample, whereas uh, another person might be in charge of actually scooping up the water out of the hot spring and filtering it into little vials uh, or... Uh, bottles. Another person is is doing like actual lab work in the field by taking uh, spectrophotometric measurements, and so they're looking for they they actually have like a it's like it's a spectrophotometer. It's a black box with a screen on it, and you uh, you is you it a handheld put, device or you have a tent set up with a table and things like that? Uh, it's a handheld device. Um, different people have different preferences, whether they like a table or not. My uh, advisor, Everett, uh, prefers to do it all on the ground. It really it depends on your preferences uh, and how much uh, weight you want to pack into the field, too, because all of this stuff has to be carried on your back. How far are we talking? It really depends where you are. So some areas, it could be a 10-minute hike, you know, less than a mile. But others, it's you're literally going into a canyon, and it's uh, it's seven miles one way. Uh, there's a place in Yellowstone called Seven Mile Hole, which is you hike on a trail and then just go down into a canyon. And then the only way back out is you have to hike the same trail out. So <laughs> you get quite tired. Yeah, it sounds like you have to be in pretty good physical shape to be able to keep up with the equipment and the team. So not necessarily. Um, we've had all sorts of people who join us on these expeditions, and the hikes are certainly strenuous, but they are definitely not limiting to certain body types or anything like that. And it's you know, as the leader, you you have to kind of take into account the people you're working with uh, and the field team. And sometimes you have to take it a little slower hiking in or maybe s- split up because we usually have two field teams. One is my advisor who, who leads. And then this last year it was me who led the second team. And so we might trade out people who might not be able to do the super ultra strenuous hike, but might be able to go into the medium one or something like that. Can you state for the record that you've never left someone behind? We have never left anyone behind. There you go. Uh, we have a everybody makes track. it out. How how long will you stay at a certain site? Are you just there for the day and then you head back to your tents for the night? It it depends on the what area we're going to. So uh, most of the areas we will drive to and then hike in, sample the whole day, hike out, and then drive back to our tents. But we do 
go into the backcountry sometimes, uh, and that requires actual like backpacking, um, you know, bringing your own tent, uh, sleeping bag, pretty much everything that you would need in order to, you know, safely and um, comfortably camp, but also all of the science stuff. So those uh, expeditions are quite a bit more challenging and they're pretty rough on your body sometimes. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, how imagine that the trip is to Yellowstone and it's a day a day in you get your samples you come back are you then right back to the lab or do you go back a second day how what is the process like how often are you at a site at Yellowstone we uh, since it's such a an investment of uh, time and money to drive up from Arizona we are there for about two weeks oh wow that's much longer than yep. I expected. And with his uh, infinite experience, our advisor has determined that a, what is it? It's a four day on, one day off, three day on, one day off, and then four day on, and then leave. That's the ideal uh, amount of time um, that you can successfully field sample without getting too uh, stir crazy. That's amazing. So, So a day off means... You get to go back into civilization or you just have to hang out at your tent for that whole day? Well, it depends. There's certainly some people and it's always kind of the uh, you draw straws for who has to do this. But some people have to go into town to get more supplies. So we run out of dry ice, which we need to keep the samples cold and frozen. And we also run out of food. Uh, Well, not run out, but, you know, we definitely need to get more food as you go. You can't just have two weeks worth of food at, at one time. The size of the field team that we usually go to Yellowstone with is about 10 people and five people per team. And so we all camp at the same, same area. Um, and then we, we take, depending on the year, two cargo vans, one filled with science stuff and one filled with like food and uh, camping stuff. And then usually at least two minivans because we need to split up and go to different areas of the park each day. So we'll have a minimum of four cars for the whole research group. And so some people are tasked with going into town and and refreshing the supplies and everything. Uh, And then others just kind of have a free day. So it really depends on the field crew, but some people go hiking if they want uh, some more torture. I was going to say, haven't they had enough of that? (laughs) Right. Four days of hiking and on my day off, hiking. And, you know, there there are some, some beautiful areas that you really don't get to see doing research because, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize that it's it's not a vacation. You know, you're going there to do work. And so they're like, oh, yeah, um, you know, I'm going to Yellowstone for two weeks and expect, you know, that they're going to see all these sites. But honestly, myself, I've only been to I've only seen Old Faithful go off once in the nine years that I've been there. And that's because like, there's, there's not a lot of time in between the field days. And when you're, when you have to split up cars on your days off, uh, some people have to go around, you know, it's like you, you split into groups of like, Oh, I kind of want to go hiking, but I also want to go see mammoth hot springs and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it's just like, I kind of fit in there, but I really want to go over here. And so some people do more touristy stuff and, you know, go see Grand Prismatic and Old Faithful. Uh, but it really depends on the person and the in the group uh, each year. Okay, so in the two-week period, you are taking samples. 
what does the rest of the the year look like? Are you, I mean, and that's two weeks, not per year, but two weeks that you're on that trip, and then maybe you'll do that again later in the year. Are you back in the lab running those samples through uh, some kind of assays, or or what does the rest of the time look like? Surprisingly, uh, two weeks worth of sam- sampling generates uh, at least a year's worth of work. Uh, oh wow! That we have to do that's great in the lab. For each sample, we'll do the in-field measurements of you know pH and temperature and conductivity and you know silica and iron and everything. But there are also analytes in the in the water that we can't we don't have field instruments for. So we have to bring them back and put them in the mass spec or uh, you know do high pressure liquid chromatography on them to figure out how much chloride is in the in the water. You don't have a backpack size mass spec. <laughs> no. Yet. If someone were to uh to develop that, that would be that would be something. I'm That'd working be... on it. <laughs> Man, those magnets would be just intensely heavy. I've got it down to the size of a small building. We'll get there. Right. And then yeah, so we we take samples for uh stable water isotopes, um hydrogen and oxygen, trace elements, you know, we can tell how much boron, uranium, arsenic and whatnot is in the water major ions and anions, uh, stuff like that. And all of that, all of those things need to be put into different machines. So once we get back from the field and you have, uh, generally people are unreachable for about, uh, maybe a week, maybe a little less, but you know, you, you need a little time to uh, be away from the people you were just in the field with for two weeks. So, you know, you take a little time off uh, and then you come back and start to actually analyze all the samples that you took, um, which takes a while depending on if the instrument's broken or not. Or Right, know, normal the, lab things that, that the rest of us can understand. Right, right. The two weeks of sampling and a year's worth of analysis suggests to me that those two weeks are more important than any other two weeks of the year. And so I have to imagine that you're doing a ton of planning and preparation to get there. Yes. You mentioned you mentioned getting dry ice partway through because you're you're dealing with keeping samples cold, but you know, what happens if you run out of things when you're in the field? How do you prepare yourself to be there for so long? That's probably ninety percent of actually doing field work is the is the preparation. Maybe not 90%, maybe like 80%, something like that. But you need to have everything planned out. The name of the game is preparation. I mean, there's there's three kind of aspects that, that I like to think of when it comes to field sampling. And that's the first one is logistical. And that's stuff like car rentals, you know, hiking equipment, compass and GPS for orienteering, maps of the area, permits for, uh, you know, making sure that you're all completely legit when you're actually sampling these hot springs. All the food that 10 people are going to need for two weeks uh, or, you know, at least for the first four days and then you can, you know, go and resupply. So it's essentially you need to figure out all the items that you would need to go on an extended camping trip as just one part of the preparation. That's just for keeping humans alive exactly. at a campsite. Yep. Yep. No no science gets done with that amount of preparation. Maybe some psychological experiments could be done with human beings put into confined spaces, but Yeah. No geological research could be done. So so what does it look like to plan experiments out in the field? So planning experiments is it's all about knowing your protocol back back and forth you need to be able to bring every reagent that you need and extra 
that you think you won't need, but it's better to bring it and not need it than need it and not have it. You can't overnight things into the park. Uh, the fastest you can get things shipped is two day. So if you are uh, if you're planning on doing something uh, in the field on Monday and you realize you don't have it, if you can reach people in your lab who aren't in the field, it's going to be Thursday by the time you have it. If they can, you know, ship it to you today, it all depends on yeah, good you know, luck. when they get it to right, right. And then on top of that, you need to prepare all of your vials and bottles exactly according to the protocol beforehand. And so all you have to do is is label what sample it is and and fill it up with uh, water or uh, you know biofilm or sediment or something. You know there's there's no time or facilities to acid wash 400 little Nalgene bottles and dry them in a laminar flow hood overnight. It's just you just can't do that. I mean Not imagine happening. imagine camping. And then trying to do science on top of that. Like, that's that's what it's like. And then you need all of the accessory things that you would usually need in the lab. Um, you know, dry ice to freeze your biological samples uh, until you can get them back to the lab. And then the amount of dry ice that you need and, and how are you going to put that in a car. So we, we have a huge dry ice cooler and... Whoever has that dry ice cooler has to have the windows down at all times because CO2 will build up in the car uh, and then you pass out while you're driving. Not ideal. Uh, <laughs> Safety first. Keep the windows down. Right. Exactly. What, what time of year are we talking? Are you driving out there? Uh, so this is generally in July. Um, okay. So, so good thing we can't have the windows up and run the air conditioning. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, in... In addition to the accessory things you need, uh, you know, dry ice, pipette tips, you know, everything like that. Everything sterile. Right. Yeah. And that's another thing is that like you, you have to you have to imagine how your protocol is going to be uh, executed in the field. And so you need to know how long each step takes and, you know, what's your total time. I mean, if you have an overnight protocol that you're wanting to do in the field, that's it's just not going to happen. And, you know, what are, what are the steps in your protocol that could pose a problem when you're trying to perform the protocol in the rain, in the hail, you know, with gusting wind, when your hands are shaking because they're so cold? You know, it's, it's not a controlled environment. You have to kind of deal with whatever you're presented with because, you know, it's, it's such a limited amount of time during the year that you can be there. Now, you said that field work is your favorite part of the research you do. And you are not selling field work to me right now with the handshake <laughs> and the hail. So it is, it's hard. I will, I will tell you that at least in Yellowstone, but it's, it's hard to describe because I only want to do field work in Aruba <laughs> or, uh, or, uh, you know, in, uh, some, you know, Hawaii or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Somewhere nice. You, you can find those. You can find those field work opportunities out there. So just you just got to look for them. But it's hard to describe because like in, in the moment when you're actually in the field, uh, you're just like, man, I hate this. Like, I just want to be home in like a warm bed. Uh, why do I have to go to sleep in my wet clothes? Sometimes, uh, you know, like this, this sucks. Uh, and then, you know, you start driving back and then you get back in the lab and then you're you're just kind of like, you know that that wasn't actually too bad. I kind of want to do that again. 
it's kind of like working out, I guess, you know, like in the moment you're just like, why am I doing this? And then afterwards, like you kind of get that rush of like, oh, wow, that was, that was really cool. Like I want to do that again. Well, and if your photo is an indication, the single photo I've seen from one of your adventures, you're, you're taking in some amazing pieces of the country and, and of the world. Yeah, it's amazing the the scenery that that we get to see. I don't know if you've ever been to Yellowstone, but they they try to keep most people on the on the boardwalks. Uh, you know, when you're walking around the hot springs, uh, and that's because there's a very thin layer of of crust. It's almost like a creme brulee. You know, like there's this nice uh, crust crusty bit on top. And then if you if you were to punch through or something, your foot is going into like boiling hot water. Oh wow! Uh, and if if you're lucky, it's just your foot. You know, if you're right next to a, a swimming pool size hot spring and you, uh, you know, you punch through, then it could be your entire body that goes in. Well, and I was going to ask about this. Have you have you been in dangerous situations? And how do you stay safe in that environment? The boiling your foot off sounds bad. Our advisor, um, Everett, he he makes everyone read the chapter in a book called Death in Yellowstone which is a book about all of the ways you can die in Yellowstone. He makes us read the, uh, the falling in hot springs chapter, um, which is pretty gruesome. I don't know what, what the, uh, what the rating is of, of your podcast, but, um, it's, it's safe for just... general audiences, but okay. tell me and right. I'll cut it out if it's too bad. Right. So it's imagine, uh, the concept of, uh, your skin getting so hot that uh, when someone tries to pull you out of a hot spring, your skin just comes off. Like a chicken. Yeah. So he he puts the fear in you so that you tread gingerly around the hot springs. But is there anything you can do to not break through that crust? You're walking up to these to take samples. There's a lot of different things we've uh, we've been taught, and some of them have been through uh, experience, and others have been through just inference. And I can't really go into all of them because I don't want to give everyone a the hitchhiker's guide to walking up to hot springs. Understood. But if you imagine what a hot spring is, there's there's a lot of uh, heat that's coming up from the subsurface, and heat isn't really good for most life. Um, you know, extreme feels like it, but most life doesn't. So if you can, if you can stay on areas where there's grass or, you know, a a lot of trees and everything, that's an indication that there's not a lot of heat and therefore there's not a lot of danger for standing where you are. That makes sense. You step off the living place and you won't be living. Right. I'm sufficiently terrified. (laughs) So yeah, there's, there's that environment. uh, And you haven't talked about bears yet. I was going to ask about bears. Right. Yep. That's the next one. But uh, essentially, you want to stay as far back from uh, animals as you possibly can because they are wild animals and you don't know what they're going to do. They might look fluffy, but they're very dangerous. And as you have probably seen in the news and everything, you know, they do kind of attack people at, at some points. And that's that's just in defense of their, you know, their young offspring um, or maybe a, um, a kill that they've made. So in certain hot spring areas, we've, you know, hiked in and come upon a huge grizzly bear, you know, feeding on an elk that it had just killed. And you don't, you don't really know about that until you walk around, you know, the next bend and then see this grizzly bear. And so that's, that's a moment where you say, 
All right. Well, what's our um, our secondary sampling spot today? Because we cannot go in here. We're going to back away slowly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you never want to run. Uh, you never want to make yourself look like prey. You know, it, you, you just have to back away slowly. A- every person of the research team carries bear spray, which is essentially just a huge can of pepper spray. And we are, we're forbidden on our permit to carry firearms. So we just have bear spray. And you have to treat the animals with the utmost respect. If you think about it, humans are encroaching on their territory. You know, they, they don't they don't care that you want to do science on the on the hot spring that they're sitting next to. You know, they're just happy that they killed this elk and they won't have to, you know, hunt again for a, a week or, you know, whatever. The don't eat so, me, I'm a scientist doesn't work? No, no. If only they understood English. That's huh. something we've been trying to teach them for years and it doesn't work. Okay, so I feel like I have a good sense of what your research entails, what it means to go on a field site visit, um, what the rest of your year might look like when you're back in the lab. I want to ask about, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are maybe not in a PhD program yet, or they're not, maybe they're a lab tech, or maybe they're an undergrad, or whatever it happens to be. How can they know if field work might be a good choice for them if they haven't heard about this type of work before? Maybe they love science, but they dread the idea of being in the lab. Are there traits that you think make somebody a successful field work scientist? You know, when when I first started uh, kind of on my research path, I, I imagined scientists as, you know, like the, uh, the lab coat wearing people hunched over a lab bench. Guilty as charged. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's certainly not bad. You know, that's that's. That, that needs to happen. And that's certainly a part of doing field work because once you have all the samples, you, you have to come back into the lab and actually analyze the samples. You really need to be flexible in what you're doing because you, you never really know if what you want to sample that day is actually going to happen. You know, so you might, you might go into a specific field area and there's a bear there or something, you know, you need to have the ability as a person to say, okay, this isn't going to work today. Maybe we can come back later in the week when they're not here. But right now, let's go to this other area. You know, you need to be able to multitask um, and be able to change your plans depending on the situation. It's a, it's a very fluid situation in the field. Your pipette could break, you know, if you didn't bring a spare or you happen to forget your pipette tips. You could go and drive back to the to the base or, or something like that, but you could Im- improvise in another way. You know, if you had a scale, you could measure it out. You know, if you needed a milliliter of water, you could do a gram, you know, or something like that. There's an improvisational aspect to it because it's not neat and tidy and foreseeable. Right. The, the actual field aspect when you're in the field is is not very neat and tidy. So you you need to be able to be able to not go and shower for a couple of days or up to a week. Um, you need to be comfortable being around people for an extended period of time. The, the people same who people who also haven't showered. Right, right, exactly. And it's you know it's it doesn't actually get too bad um, <laughs> in, in that respect. At least not that I've noticed. People who have camping experience or who like to camp. Uh, and go on adventures. Um, this is a very good 
uh, avenue for them to to go on. I, I don't want to give you the impression that all field work is like I've described. There are people that go out into to their local rivers and look at the river discharge throughout the year, and you know that's field work. Or there's the more extreme field work of going on a in a submersible to deep sea vents, or um, you know investigating Antarctica. Uh, you know, looking at the ice sheets and 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 all of that there, uh, that's that's field work too, but it all depends on what you're interested in. You know, there's a need for more people to go out and actually go on these trips. Talk about that a little bit. That, that's surprising to me. I think with with like scheduling, it's sometimes hard to break away from the lab. Um, if you are trying to defend your thesis or you are in, in the, the writing mode area of your research. And so there's, there's research that has to be done in the field uh, for other students. You know, you might not have a direct project that's going on in the field, but another student does and they need, you know, six samples of these hot springs. And so you might not have a, um, a project, but you are more than welcome to come along because it's you just need help in completing all of the tasks that are presented to you. It seems like from your description of the way your lab does their their field trips, that it is a more team-based approach to research. It's not everybody has a single project and it's every man for himself. It sounds more like people have divided up the work to accomplish a common goal. Is that sound accurate? Yeah, that's that's very accurate. There's there's certain aspects that are more individual based. So if someone is interested in the rate of iron oxidation of certain microbes in a hot spring, you know, they might have their individual project of, you know, sampling the sediment and then like, you know, essentially in like a little microcosm experiment um, measuring you know, iron in there over a set amount of time. But on top of that, there's the there's the more team aspect of, well, with that specific experiment, you also need all of the other data that goes along with it. You know, you need the pH and temperature. At a certain point, you're going to need to know all of this other stuff that goes along with that one experiment that you did. And you're relying on other people to do that because that's the more efficient way of doing it versus you as one person doing everything. So it's not as if your dissertation is a group project. It's it's just that you've got to collect so many different pieces of information about a single sample that everybody pitches in and it benefits everybody. Correct. Yep. Be nice if somebody else is writing your dissertation for you, but can't have right. everything. Vince, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about your experience, your research. Yeah, I mean, thanks thanks for having me on. I've uh, I've never really done a podcast interview for, before. So, First time uh, for everything. That's true. Yep. The only way to learn is through experience, so... Uh. <laughs> All right, Dan, going into this, I was interested to see if fieldwork was really everything I love about science, but with camping. And and what was your verdict? Kind of. It sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, at least what Vince does. At least, well, it's not like he, this was something I think to keep in mind for me. I guess the exciting thing that we talked to him about is, you know, it seems like those two weeks for the year, he's out there at the, the field site. But then there's still a lot of time in the lab doing lab type stuff under the fluorescent lights. Minus two weeks. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's true. You do enjoy camping. You enjoy being outdoors and, and doing that type of thing, right? I do. Do you like camping? I don't love... Uh, I hate it when you camp in a tent and you mm. wake up and your clothes are wet. Oh, yeah. That really bothers me. We've camped before together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. true fact. But I have to say this. Part of what keeps me from camping is that I feel like I'm going to be out in the middle of nowhere and be bored. Mm. And so I feel like if I had an experiment to do or some reason to be out there, it would give me more reason to go camping and I would probably love it. So that's true. Don't know what to tell you. Well, so a couple of things that stood out to me. One was him talking about and, and, and you probing him about the critical nature of those two weeks. I mean, because it sounds like that really the sample collection, I mean, that's really the focus of all that work that goes, happens in the lab for the other 50 weeks of the year. Are those samples collected during that two weeks? That's a lot of pressure. If you mess up, there's no going back two weeks later. And if you lose a reagent, there's no... I mean, it, he said it takes at least two days to ship it if you can get a hold of somebody in the lab. So there's there's very little room for error. And it, feel, it sounded like there's a lot of improvisation. There's a lot of work on... Moving on to the next thing, if this thing doesn't work out, it, you're going to make your plan. You're going to spend a lot of time planning. But at the same time, you better be prepared to shift. We've got to get these samples no matter what. Uh, you know, the thing it made me think about was going camping with my family. And, you know, with the age of my kids, we've not tried a camping trip longer than two days. I know your kids love to sample hot springs. <laughs> well, I think about the amount of stuff that we pack for a two-night Two, two nights <laughs> where we're basically just sitting around and eating Cheetos and grilling hot dogs, right? You are also taking two caravans and a science <laughs> van just to go for Pretty much the same. So it's just hard to imagine the level of, of planning and detail that would go in to a two-week field study with multiple people and, and just all the things you have to think through, basically building up this mobile lab out in the wilderness. So true. And I think everybody can do the thought experiment Picture in your mind everybody you work with in lab right now, your PI, your postdocs, your grad students, your lab techs. Now imagine two weeks of really not showering a lot, being right on top of each other for 12 hours a day. I think <laughs> he said that when they get back, they, they might disappear for a week and not talk to anybody because it is just so intense being with people like that. I think we did have some grad students in my lab who didn't shower a lot there. <laughs> so you have some of the experience. Uh, the other thing that this reminded me a little bit of, he was talking about the grizzly bears, and there's just something exhilarating about doing research that can kill you. And this reminded me of my days back in the BSL-3 doing a research similar... on pathogens that could kill me. True. Mice and grizzly bears are slightly different, but you did have some some harrowing experiences. And there are dangers in the lab, and I think you know, he is trained to be where he is and to be safe where he is. And I think that's true for scientists, even in the lab. He was, he wanted to, to make sure everybody realized, and, and he emailed me after we talked that they're one of the things that they're very conscious about while they're in the field that he didn't talk about was the chemical hygiene. So they're going out with all of these plastics and materials and chemicals, and they have to make sure that they collect and pack out everything that they take in. So now imagine you're doing your bench research all of the waste that you generate, which is immense, they have to take with them and take back out of, uh, you know, hike back out of wherever they go. And he pointed out that even if you are not the kind of person that maybe wants to go camping, you can still work in a lab that is doing this kind of field work 
because they need people that are back in the lab doing the the actual sample analysis, doing the assays. Um, his particular group has a thermodynamic modeling team that is using the field data to improve models of the system. So there are ways to be involved. If you are passionate about preservation or you're passionate about certain species of animals that someone's studying, but you don't necessarily want to be the one that goes out with a flashlight at midnight, there's still a place for you in that research. Oh, that's good to hear. You know, Dan, I will say, though, as someone who would be interested in taking the flashlight out into the field, I think I was trying to reflect a little bit about what seems appealing about that to me. Because I think, you know, regardless of if you're a microbiologist or a cell biologist or a field scientist who's interested in hydrothermal vents or whatever, you know, I think that scientific method and that that kind of draw to to questioning uh, the world around us, seeking answers, you know, that's a commonality. But one thing that seems different about the field work than maybe what I was doing was that the work you're doing in the lab seems really directly related to its big picture connection because I'm in the lab working on these samples that I actually went out to the hot spring and collected or, you know, I was in a boat off the coast of South Carolina collecting these shark samples and I can remember seeing the shark or seeing the water in the hot spring and the surroundings and now I'm in the lab maybe pipetting some liquids around but I have that connection that direct connection to the real world application in a way that I don't know that I always had doing molecular biology in the lab. It, it feels less abstract to you. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. And so there are going to be people out there that are drawn away from the abstraction to the more concrete uh, impact in the world. And, and this might be a good thing to consider. And it may be something that you haven't thought a lot about because if you're on a university campus, you may have only learned about the research experiences that are very close to the university campus. But in, in truth, there are all of these other opportunities. And I think it's a very diverse world of field research, and we have barely scratched the surface. Absolutely. Um, you know, closer to home, Dan, I can remember talking to a graduate student a few years ago who was in a lab that was doing, and he was doing a project that was very translational. Are you familiar with translational science in the context of of biology or biomedical science. Closer to the patient. Yeah, exactly. And so what he was doing was he was very much working in a lab similar to the way we did. He was in an immunology lab. But part of his job was actually to go collect these samples directly from patients who were at the hospital who were suffering from this disease that he was studying. So he was talking to me about how it really made his own work a lot more meaningful as he was working with sample A and he knew, well, sample A, that was from that nice man, Jim, who has this disease. And it just brought it all home for him and, and helped him stay motivated to have that connection with, you know, that real connection with the problem he was trying to solve. No, I think that's great advice for people looking for labs right now to know, to know that about yourself, that you want that connection and there are ways to find it. All right, Dan, well, thank you for... Uh, connecting with Vince, and, and thank you to Vince. And I thought it was cool, Dan, the connection that Vince was also the winner of the Promega Art Contest. And thank you for reminding me that we're going to post some pictures that he sent me of some geysers, his photo that won, um, and I have a few pictures of Vince in, in different locations. So uh, go to the show notes and you can check those out. Very cool. Well, if you're listening and you have an interesting experience doing field work yourself, or if you have some other question or topic idea you would like for us to discuss on the show, we'd love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. 
If you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback. And if you would like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer or bourbon money. Depends on the day. Thanks to the ongoing support of all of our patrons. All right, Joshua, we will see you next time. See you next time.